0: Okay, I think we're on, ready to go. Uh, The only announcement I'm aware of, now there may be one hiding under this piece of paper. Uh, I will be gone this coming Sunday, but please be here in attendance. It's always end up with a slightly smaller crowd when the shepherd's away, the sheep will play. Uh, Scott Ulrich will be here. I will be in Preston City for the, uh, uh, this ordination uh, at Preston City Bible Church. And so I'm flying up there Friday morning and will be back Sunday evening. So be in prayer for uh, safety, flying, things on time. Uh, I told, the, I warned the Israel group, you never know what will happen. Uh, Wayne House has taken a group to Israel. They were supposed to fly out of Newark at 3.30. When was that? Monday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And then they were out on the tarmac for three or four hours, and then they were told they would depart at 1.30 the next morning. So they got into Israel about something like 12.30 in the morning. Ridiculous. Bad weather. Messed up everything in the Northeast, so... That kind of thing happens. But uh, just pray for pray for those things. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you are ready to study the word, right relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, when we look around us, we recognize that our civilization, our culture here in America, but Western civilization as a whole has has turned its back on you. We have abandoned you, and we are chasing after many other gods, just as those in Israel did numerous times, but especially in the time of the judges. And Father, we are seeing all of the same consequences and cultural collapse that they are. But just as you were faithful to Israel all through that period, just as you were faithful to them and just as you provided for them, even then you provided uh, protection for the believers, even during that those times of warfare and those times of famine, those times of enduring divine discipline, we know that. If that is our lot that you will provide for us, for your grace is sufficient for us in any and every circumstance. But we need to be prepared. We need to be strong. We need to recognize that it is uh, that you are our shield, you are our rock, and you are the one who provides for us, and that we need to strengthen ourselves in our spiritual life, strengthened in the inner man, by God the Holy Spirit. And we pray for that. And we pray that as we study your word tonight, it will give us wisdom and insight into what goes on in civilizations, in cultures, in nations, and in individual lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges uh, chapter um, 19. Judges chapter 19. And we're looking at understanding this failure that takes place between Judges and Judges 19 to 21. Now, this is a difficult passage. It's difficult trudging through Judges because it's not pretty. It's not one of these books that's teaching you all kinds of wonderful things about your spiritual life. But it's teaching you about how to have wisdom in the midst of a culture that is in collapse because of idolatry, because they've turned their back on God, and because uh, their values are completely upended. In fact, they've done the same thing. I mean, it's, we have these modern terms for uh, 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 moral relativism, situational ethics, all of these things, but it's not new. It's been going on since uh, uh, Eve shared her fruit with Adam and it's not going to get any better some days it seems better but what we see also is the covers have been pulled back as it were over the last i would say the last 20 years but what it's revealed is what's been there for a very long time and a study of history you realize how how there have been areas it may may not be as widespread but there are areas in our culture That have been just as uh, rotten and malignant a hundred years ago as today. The ideas that are now so evident in universities, in our media, uh, in uh, politics, in the way everyday school kids uh, think, uh, has been there for uh, in many areas, in some areas of our country, for, for over 200 years. And some of us were sheltered, and many of us, for many years, most people in America were sheltered. We've lived in a bubble in the history of the world, a wonderful bubble built on the uh, spiritual lives and the thinking of mature believers that came here in the In the 17th century, they came with the pilgrims and then the Puritans and then the many Anabaptist groups that came and the Presbyterian groups that came, and they understood they had a heritage that they had been taught that had developed and had been built through the Middle Ages and uh, expanded in the time of the Reformation. And all of this produced just a remarkable, remarkable nation and yet it is under assault. It really has been for 200 years, almost since its founding. And I have said many times in my study of history that if they had waited another 20 years, this country wouldn't be here. It never would have happened because the worldviews were shifting. They were just at that critical point when it, when it could happen. And Israel is I had a high point under Joshua when they went into the land, they saw all kinds of miraculous things. I want us to think a little bit about as we read through scripture, when you read through the episodes in the wilderness and how much they saw in terms of God's physical deliverance, the miracles they saw on a daily basis, every day waking up. And, and they didn't have to go to the grocery store because God put the food right out there on the ground all around them. All they had to do was pick it up. Uh, God provided in the, uh, with, the, with, the, with the quail. God provided water in the midst of the desert. All kinds of things. And what did they do? They grumbled and they complained and they griped. and um, They had no capacity to appreciate God's grace. They were believers for the most part, but they they had their eyes on the details of life. And when the uh, Joshua generation, when the conquest generation had finished by the time they died off, what happened? They began to worship the idols. They began to get involved with the religious practices of the Canaanites. Uh, They became paganized. And our culture today is is a pagan culture. It is no longer a Christian culture. I think um, I think it was about uh, seven or eight years ago, or maybe ten years ago, when President Obama said that we weren't a Christian nation anymore. He was absolutely right. People just went, "Oh, that's terrible to say that," but he was right because we have become so apostate. And even many evangelical churches that you can go to in this in this city that are large churches. And I'm not talking about First Baptist or Second Baptist or some of the a few other churches that are large. I'm just talking about the ones you usually see advertised on TV. And those are the ones that have departed from the Scripture. They, they talk. They give the Bible lip service. They talk about God. They talk about this is the Bible. This is God's Word. But, but there's no exposition. There's no verse-by-verse teaching. By the way, one of the one of the great Baptist pastors of of our generation of our time um, uh, passed away this morning, and after he was ni- ninety years old, and now his name just just uh, slipped my mind. Pastor Stanley. Charles Stanley passed away, and his son Andy Stanley is just one of the great heretics of our generation. And uh, and he, you know, Doctor Stanley just would still talk to his son which shows how grace oriented he was but he didn't agree with him and his son is one of the most progressive uh, apostate pastors out there and and that's what makes him popular many churches like that we have the same thing with uh, with uh, Dr. Young over second baptist here his son moved into my neighborhood and started a church when I was still in Irving 30 uh, something years ago and um, it's the same thing and it just it's, uh, they get you the, it's like a nursery school worker who lets the kids determine what they're going to eat and what they're going to do and how they're going to spend their time, and has absolutely no uh, managerial or authoritative role over the kids. They just do, "Oh, whatever you want, I'm going to give you all the candy and sugar and cookies and cakes that you can have." And that just destroys a culture. But that's where they are. And we have an apostate culture. And what we see in these chapters in Judges is very interesting. There's a couple of interesting hits, hints, one of which you know. The other one I'm going to tell you about in just a little bit because we're going through a little survey of this, these last three chapters uh, tonight. So last time what we learned was the impact of spiritual apostasy on the nation's divine institutions. Personal responsibility toward God, divine institution number one, we're all accountable to God, we are all given volitional responsibility. Uh, Divine institution number two is marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It was designed by God before sin ever Uh, appeared on the uh, on the planet apart from satan and divine institution number three was the family which is the school for the next generation and it doesn't matter if you have schools it doesn't matter if you have sunday schools or prep schools it doesn't matter what where you send your kids during the week for aid in their education the buck stops with daddy The buck doesn't stop with the mother. It is the father who is given the responsibility to raise children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And when the father doesn't do that, the family fails and the nation fails. All it takes is, is, as we see here, just one individual or many individuals failing in that responsibility and you see the collapse of the nation in in a generation or less. And so... Uh, the apostasy. First, there was the spiritual apostasy with uh, um, Micah and his uh, idol, and then he hires his own priest, and they violate the law of the central sanctuary and have their own sanctuary. They set up his, they make an, their own, um, their own shrine, their own ephod, all of their own rules instead of God, God's rules, and that's what we see in about ninety percent of so-called evangelical churches today. They have made up their own rules for worship. And the ultimate criteria comes right out of the religious liberal playbook, which is emotion is the ultimate criteria for your spiritual life. And that's how they, that, that's how they run their churches. That's how they, how they think about music. So spiritual apostasy has a horrible impact. Second, we saw the anatomy of national self-destruction. This is this is what how it breaks down, and you first have the apostasy uh, in seventeen and eighteen, where they're violating what Jesus called the first and greatest law, which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that because they turned away from God, then the other parts of the civilization fell apart. And so we're seeing there and in Judges nineteen and 20 to twenty one how uh, the decisions of individuals within a nation impact the whole nation. So Micah and the Levitical priest illustrate the violation of the first commandment to love their Lord, their God, exclusively. No other gods before me, God said in the first commandment. And then in this episode, we're beginning in Judges 19 to 21. It's a violation of the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. That is the, what he is saying is the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament hangs on those two commands. So what we're going to learn tonight is continuing the anatomy of national self-destruction. We'll see, secondly, the role authority orientation plays in individual and national spiritual health. Because the story starts off with the problem with authority orientation in a marriage. And then all of the events that follow just fell like dominoes from that, be- that beginning. And then we're going to continue to see how the decisions of individuals within a nation impact the whole nation. And what we didn't get to last time, which is the core of what we're going to cover tonight, is the structure of these three chapters. And we're going to do something kind of interesting. That should be Judges 19 to 21. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the last verse of Judges uh, 21, and we're going to tell the story backwards. And the reason we're going to do that is then we see how all everything that happened falls from the original Errors and falls just like dominoes. So we'll look at the background to the horrific attack. This is the structure. You have this uh, horrible attack and gang rape of the concubine slash wife of the Levite, and the result of that is is so horrible. It is so horrible that that he wants to wake up the nation as to what's really going on. Have you felt that way? In the last several years, you just want to take the country and just shake it. Wake up, don't you see how you're destroying yourself? Well, that's what he wants to do, and so he has this, this just uh, almost a grotesque way of doing it. Now, I've pointed this out before when we talk about studying, reading the Bible, that you have several, several basic rules, one of which is the law of proportion. And that is, if you have uh, things that are stretched out, stories that go through three or four chapters, then God really wants you to pay attention to it. And this, as I pointed out last time, this is the longest episode second to Gideon and his son Abimelech in Judges. So God is saying something. This is an important episode to go through. Now, you may not like it. It may not be pleasant. It's not going to make you feel all warm and fuzzy toward God and Jesus and other Christians, but it's going to teach us a lot. And that's what it's designed to do. Somewhere in the Bible, I think, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God for teaching, for reproof and correction. So it's for instruction. And when Paul wrote that, he didn't have the New Testament, only a few books in the New Testament had been written. Maybe maybe half, but a little bit less than half had been written when Paul wrote that to Second Tim to in Second Timothy. So he was primarily talking about the scriptures he had referred to one verse earlier, where he had reminded Timothy that he was brought up on the scriptures at the knees of his mother and grandmother, and that when that word scripture when Scripture is used there, it referred only to the Old Testament because that's all there was. And most people don't even want to start there. That that Charles Stanley's apostate son, Andy Stanley, is the one that says, we don't ever need to teach the Old Testament. It's not necessary. It just has all kinds of problems. It upsets a lot of people. You get into these ridiculous discussions about evolution and creation. We just need to start with Matthew. What a... Spiritual idiot. And it's sad to say, this guy went to Dallas Seminary and he didn't get his views because he went to Dallas Seminary. I'll tell you that. Because he went about 25 or 30 years ago. And um, he didn't get that from anybody there. So we're going to learn the background to this attack and then the details of the attack. And look at that. We've got 19 verses going through the details of this assault. That's not pleasant reading, and when we get there, we need to stop and think about it. You need to read it. You need to think about how would you feel if this had happened to you and to somebody you know and in your neighborhood. What would your, what kind of gut reaction would you have to what is going on? And that's what. By doing that, then we understand Israel's, the nation's response. They're they're just appalled that this has happened. They don't realize yet that the reason this has happened is because of their apostasy. And that's going to take us down to uh, 20 verse 48. So I want you to just turn over a page or two to chapter 20. My pages are sticking together. 48 is the last verse. Well, I marked it in, but see, I'd read everything electronically. So this would be... Maybe I'm in the wrong... Maybe, no... Well, somebody will find the verse. One of you is going to wake up and see it. And uh, oh, here it is, twenty-eight. I knew it was something eight. Twenty-eight. Look at that. I want you to read the first line. Just read it to yourself. This is a pop quiz. Who is Phineas? You remember Phineas? Phineas is the son of Eleazar, who's the son of Aaron. He's Aaron's grandson, so he is Moses. what? Great great nephew. Have we read about another descendant of Moses lately? Yeah, at the end of chapter 18. At the end of chapter 18 and the second to last verse, verse 30 we're told this is the real punchline and you don't get it in most English translations because they went with what's in the Masoretic text and the Masoretes changed the name so it wouldn't embarrass Moses. The verse there says that the, the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image and the Levitical priest that Micah hired's name is Jonathan. His father was Gershom, Moses' first child. His father is Gershom, the son of, and it's not Manasseh. The only difference in Hebrew between Manasseh and Moses is the insertion of a letter N between the M and the S. So on the one hand, in this first episode... You realize that you've got uh, the bad guy, one of the most influential bad guys here is Moses' grandson as is is an apostate priest. and when you get into Judges uh, 2028, 20, he's still a hero. Phineas is the high priest and he is the descendant of Aaron. and the other place that we see him mentioned is in numbers with that whole weird episode with Balaam and the, and the Moabite, king, king of the Moabites, who wants him, Balaam to curse Israel. And remember at the end, God won't let him curse Israel. So Balaam goes up in his conspiratorial voice to, to the king of Moab. He says, just send all your temple prostitutes in amongst the Jews and they'll seduce all those men and you'll destroy the nation. So he did it. And they had a, and a great orgy was taking place and Phinehas stood up and he called the Levites to his side and he said, we have to execute all of the men who have uh, committed adultery with those temple prostitutes. And they had a slaughter. I think they killed something like 28,000 that day. That's this Phinehas. So what does that tell you? That tells you that this is the, the grandson of Aaron is a key player in this episode in 19 to 21. And the grandson of Moses is a key player in the episode from 18 and 19. What does that tell you? This didn't happen at the end of the period of the judges. This is that we we covered. First of all, we covered scene A, which is the leaders. Six cycles of leaders who got increasingly apostatized. Then we shift gears and we go back to the beginning of the time period and see how the people became apostatized. So this is happening not at the end of the period of the Judges, which is when Samuel's alive and it's about maybe 1100 to 1050 BC. This is happening back, remember, um, 1446 BC is the Exodus, 40 years there in the wilderness, 1406 to 1400 is the conquest. And Joshua probably lived another 40 years or 50 years, just round numbers, to 1350. So this is probably like around 1350 to 1320 BC. Right? That first generation after Moses, after, uh, Joshua and the elders generation died. So this is, this is at the, this isn't at the end, this is at the beginning and it got worse. Last night I was reading some descriptions of what it was like to live in Rome in the early Middle Ages, around 600. They had uh, gangs armed with weapons. Uh, They had to pass a law that people would not shove manure in the mouths of other people. Now, you only pass a law like that when it's a problem. Isn't that lovely? And all of the other things that were going on in the streets, you didn't want to go out into the streets of Rome. It was horrible. We haven't gotten that bad yet. I just tell you these things so that you understand some perspective that as bad as it seems some days, we're not as bad as De- as Detroit and Chicago, okay? But it's all going downhill. So that's just a little insight so we understand some of these some of these little issues. And this national implosion is created by the horrific attack, and there's a civil war, a civil war. And we've heard a lot of people talk about the possibility of a civil war in this country, red states against blue states, and all kinds of other horrible things. So... Last time we looked at the problems of idolatry, and then we come to Judges 19, 19.1, and we'll just start here to begin. Just a couple of things here, because this is one of the odd, odd cultural phenomenas of the ancient world that we have a hard time. Every time I talk about Abraham and Hagar as his concubine, people just don't understand it. And that's just not part of our uh, of our culture Culture, but it was part of theirs. So we read, it came to pass in those days. What, what does those days refer to? The same days as the same time period as what's going on in 17 and 18. It's early, early days in the period of the judges. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel because they had rejected Yahweh as their king that there was a certain Levite. Now he's not named in the remote mountains of Ephraim. And he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, it's interesting. The only person that's really named in this whole thing is going to be Phinehas. And the lack of naming people means that the writer is using them also as, as sort of representatives of, of, the peop- other, of other people that it, it's not just about this particular Levite and this particular woman, that they're pretty... Re- he's using them as representatives of this kind of thing is going on all around, all around the country. So there's a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this word... Um, concubine is from the uh, Hebrew word pilagesh. And a concubine was like a second class wife. Since last week I've read a little more about this. And so, but it's, it's a weird phrase in, in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, there's a word in the Hebrew that is missing from this sentence. The word that comes before concubine in the Hebrew is the word ishah. It connects, that's the word for wife. Ish is the word for husband, ishah, the word for wife. That's what's used to describe Eve before Adam names her. And so he took for himself an ishah, a wife concubine. That would be how it would be translated. I didn't find anybody who translated the Isha. So that tells us something. Now, here is a description of this. I just found this fascinating. Uh, this is from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the Old Testament. And this is uh, edited by a guy named Spiros Odiades. He, uh, he was a Greek and a scholar in Greek, not in Hebrew, but he, he had written this sort of word study, New Testament, and then they did a word study, Old Testament, with a lot of little tools in there to help people at a sort of an elementary level understanding and being able to do word studies if you didn't know Hebrew or you didn't know Greek. This is what he says. He says, first of all, a concubine was a legitimate wife. It's a second-class wife. It's not like wife number one, it's wife number two. She just doesn't have all the privileges that wife number one has. She's of secondary rank. This is evident by the references to the concubine as having a husband in Judges 19.2. So when we look at at the second verse, it says, um, but his concubine played the harlot. That's not correct played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house and oh verse 3 says they miss they got the verse wrong in there or i read it wrong no that should be 19:3 uh, uh, cuz then it says then her husband arose and went after her and that's that's a correct translation could be the man but you know when you're using ish and isha in the same context it's usually husband and wife so she he's still referred to her as her husband and not only that but when you get down to verse 5, it says... Um, it refer, uh, in verse 4, it says, now his father-in-law. And then in verse 5, it says his uh, son-in-law. Now, son-in-law and father-in-law seem to imply that this is something that's pretty close to marriage. It's just not quite. Just, just half a step lower. Um, so the the man and her father are considered to be son-in-law and father-in-law, respectively. Uh, concubines were presented opposite the wives of higher rank. Uh, that's, we see that with Solomon. And the ability to have and keep concubines was a sign of wealth status and often of ro- royalty. And it's picked up from pagans. That's not God's design. But because it had penetrated the culture of the ancient Near East... God regulated it in the Mosaic law. That doesn't mean that that was God's ideal, but he regulated so that it would would it would protect the rights of the concubine so she couldn't be treated like just like she was thrown out with the garbage. So the area we're talking about here is in the purple. It's the south. He comes up from Bethlehem down here near the very bottom, in the the bottom little circle here. And he's gone up here somewhere named in Ephraim. And then he's going to go back down uh, to see her. So this is what's happening um, all around here. So what I want to do now is just mention a couple of things that we should pay attention to. One is that the concubine is from Bethlehem in Judah. Why is that important? See, when you read this, you read that he goes to the remote mountains of Ephraim, but it doesn't tell you where he's staying. It doesn't identify the geographical location, what town, what village. But he does identify where the concubine is from, and she's from Bethlehem in Judah. Why do you think that's important? What's the next book in the Bible? Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite, and there's a Jewish family that leaves it is Judah and goes to Moab. The boys, two boys marry two Moabite women. Then the the boys die and the dad dies and the, the wife of the dad, Naomi, wants to go home. Where's home for Naomi? Bethlehem. Okay, and so they go back and Ruth is going to marry Boaz. Marries Boaz, and they're going to have a great-grandson. What's his name? David. Where's he from? Bethlehem okay is some of this starting to make sense to you as to why these things are brought out okay then the second thing is these horrible events take place in Gibeah why is that important who's from Gibeah I'll give you a hint he's not the first king of Israel Only some of you are going to get that hint. It's Saul. That's right. He's the second king of Israel. Who's the first king in Israel? Abimelech. That's right. You pass. Okay. So Gibeah is Saul's hometown. So all this horrible civil war starts in the hometown that will be Saul's in another couple of hundred years. But it's like... The Holy Spirit is giving us foreshadowing of key places and what happens because there's there's certain trends or things that are going on. So then we go back to Genesis, I mean to Judges 19 one. it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there's this certain Levite, again a Le- Levitical priest, so both the episode in 17 and 18 and the episode 19 and 21 center on the on the priesthood on a levitical priest and so he's staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. and he took for himself a concubine from bethlehem in judah so that is the introduction what sets things in motion is what happens in verse two But his concubine, and see the word there that's that's translated played the harlot, saying that she prostituted herself, Is it has three consonants, Z-N-H, Zona. Now, Zona means a prostitute. But there's another word that is spelled the same way, and it means to get really mad and angry and disgusted with somebody. And that is more likely the word that that is used here. She just gets mad. She's fed up with this priest, and she's going to go home to daddy and sulk. And he's going to let her blow off steam and wait a couple of months, and then he's going to go try to mend fences and clean things up and everything. So that starts the ball, the chain of events rolling. So now I want you to turn to the last verse of the last chapter. And what happened is there's several events that happened here at the end where you, there's been a civil war and almost all of the men are of Benjamin are wiped out except for 600 it decimates the tribe of Benjamin because they did not defend the honor of the concubine. So we're going to walk backwards. So if we go to the end and in verses 13 to 22, so you could draw a little line there to mark the divisions as you go back, is that there's 200 Benjamin Benjamite men who capture 200 female dancers at the tabernacle at Shiloh. What did we hear about Shiloh before? You didn't know you were going to have to think tonight, did you? We just heard about it in the previous episode with, with Micah, because the Levitical priest there is setting up a shrine, and then they go up and they, they move the shrine up to Dan at the same time that they are have the tabernacle in Shiloh, and that's mentioned because it's setting this the contrast up. So they go to these uh, female dancers as Shiloh and take them as wives under the authority of the elders of Israel. So the elders of Israel are authorizing this, and so we ask the question, well, why did they give them permission to do that? And that takes us to the next episode, going walking our way backwards. The reason it was necessary for them to authorize the Benjamite, these 200 Benjamite men to take 200, uh, dancers and their virgin dancers at the temple and to, uh, take them as their wives was because these, uh, 600, there were only 600 men left in Benjamin after the Civil War. Four hundred of them apparently were able to take wives from the, the tribe of Jabesh Gilead. So this is talking about the survival of one of the tribes of Israel. It got so bad that they almost wiped out one of the tribes. Jabesh Gilead could only provide four hundred for the of the six hundred men who needed a wife. And uh, that was all the virgins the Israelites had found to take care of the, the men so that the Benjamite tribe could go forward and could uh, rebuild itself. So That's really interesting. Demographically, it's reduced to 600 males after this civil war. It's ju- They've just been slaughtered by their fellow Jews. And now they've got to rebuild... And so these 600 men have 600 wives, and they're a flourishing tribe again 200 years later at the time of Saul. Because if I'm right, and this is talking about the time period of about 1350 to 1320, then that's 250 to 300 years before, probably 250, 275 years before Saul. Now... How did all this get, get set up with Jabesh Gilead? Well, this is the fourth point going backwards. It's Judges 20, 14 to 48. The other tribes in Israel, after the civil war's over, approached Jabesh Gilead to get wives for the Benjamite men because they felt sorry for them because they had annihilated all but these 600 men of Benjamin. Let me ask you a question. Where's Jabesh Gilead? Do y'all remember? It's on the other side of the Jordan from the main, main part of Israel. See over here, this is the area is also known. Here's Jabesh Gilead right here. It's over in the tribe, the territory of Gad on the Transjordan. This line here is the Jordan River. So Benjamin is down here, this yellow. That's their tribe they've got to go over here to get wives from Jabesh-Gilead which dominated that that territory so the other tribes in Israel approached Jabesh-Gilead to get wives for the Benjamin men because they felt sorry for them in twenty-one, one through seven, so how is this tribe going to go on? And um, and they ask this question. Uh, we, we see the people go to the house of God. Where's the house of God? Shiloh. They go. They go to the house of God and remain there before God till evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, "O Lord God of Israel." Why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early, built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then they began to solve the problem. So that takes us to uh, the episode before this. The other tribes had attacked Benjamin in a devastating civil war because Benjamin would not hand over the inhabitants of Gibeah after the horrific attack in other words the tribe of Benjamin was saying we're okay with this we're okay with the criminality the gang rape Uh, we're okay with all of this and the chaos and lack of law and order we're fine maybe we could say they're sort of the California of Israel at that time Just a complete breakdown of law and order, just about. So what happened before that? Well, the other tribes had demanded that Gibeah be handed over because of the Levites' testimony about the horrible assault on this concubine. So when they learned about this horrific gang rape that had taken place in Gibeah, they wanted justice. And the result was that that the Benjamin said, no, that's okay, we're okay with that, we're not going to do anything about it. We have numerous parallels uh, like that today where we're not going to do anything about criminality. Seventh, so when they got this horrific, gross message the other tribes demanded an explanation from the Levite about why did you send us all these body parts? And when he told them, they were appalled at what had happened. So what preceded that? What did he do? And just think about this. Think about those scenes you've seen in CSI and in... Uh, Castle and in all these other shows that have you go into the morgue and you see him cutting up the body parts. The Levite cut up the body part of his wife, his concubine, to send a message to shock the rest of the country into what was going on in Gibeah we're not even the nation's not even shocked about what goes on in chicago or detroit or some of these other cities anymore well oh, that's somewhere else what preceded that was an episode that is parallel in numerous ways to the episode of sodom and the rescue of Lot from Sodom and the description of what was going on in Sodom. Gibeah was now as bad as Sodom had been. Before that, the man who has has welcomed the Levite and his concubine to stay in his house... Um, had welcomed them because they were just going to camp out as and would be a safe place in many, many towns and villages was just in the town square. You just come in and you uh, set aside your little place and you set roll out your bedroll and you're safe. But this guy comes out and says, you're not safe here. You're not safe here. And I can't take responsibility for what's going to happen to you if you stay out here at night. It will be horrible. And so he brought them into his house. Now, go back one. So the host brought them in because he felt an obligation to protect them. So he's got some sense of responsibility. But the rest of this town doesn't. And they're going to come and have a gang rape with this woman. And And the details of that we'll get into. So he has brought them in. He has... Uh, felt obligated to protect them. But why did he need to, why did they get there at night where there was no time, uh, where, where, where there was no place to stay? Why did, why did that happen? See, there's, this is a whole chain of events. Why did they get there so late? Well, they got there so late because the Levite had procrastinated with, with her father. The guy kept saying, come on, have another another beer, uh, let's have another scotch, let's just drink away, have a good time, and then you leave later on in the afternoon. So four days goes by like this. And finally, the Levite says, I've got to get out of here, but it's too late in the day to get very far, and they come close to Jerusalem, but it's a, it's a Canaanite city, the Jebusites are still there. The city is still identified as Jebus, so they go beyond that which isn't very far. It's only about three or four miles to Gibeah, Saul from Jerusalem. And um, and so they go there, but they get there and it's nightfall and it's going to be a problem. It's not going to be pretty. So the Levite was on a journey home because he had gone to retrieve his concubine from his father-in-laws in Judges 19:3 through 9. The Levite went there to get retrieve his wife because she had gotten really angry and fed up with him and she had left him and she left him because she was angry with him so she got angry and left to go home to daddy and he let it go cuz we see he's a procrastinator so rather than deal with the situation soon he puts it off So there's just this string of bad decisions uh, that come along. So she's angry with him because, what? Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. See, there's this moral cultural failure that is evident in the way these people are trying to handle life. And when you're handling it on the basis of moral relativism, then it's just going to reap horrible consequences. We're reminded of several principles. The first is that as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And you had many, I think, who were believers at this time, but they were in Israel, but they were apostatizing. They didn't care about what God said. There are a lot of Christians today that don't care about what God says. I think that we have a lot of people like that in this country. They're believers, but they don't care what God says. And they're being outnumbered uh, every day. We're getting more and more who are not believers. A second thing we see in this episode is the assault on sexuality, because that's what it is. You have homosexuality, you have gang rape, you have just... uh, sex is turned into something that is absolutely horrible. It's an assault on the divine institution of marriage, number divine institution number two, and the divine institution number three. And when that happens, when you lose the family, and there was an article in Time Magazine about 15 years ago that they said the family in America was lost. I couldn't believe Time Magazine would publish it. The family in America was gone. Once that happens, the nation's gone. It's just a matter of time. The assault on marriage is what we're seeing ever. We've been seeing it for a long time. It goes back to at least the 60s. But it gathered steam more and more and more. And people treat marriage as if it is something trivial and can be uh, ended for trivial reasons are well let's nowadays the reason the divorce rate is getting lower is because people just aren't getting married. So that way they don't have to worry about getting a divorce when they break up. And when you come to that point, your civilization is is teetering on a cliff and we need to be aware of that and prepare ourselves another thing that we see is a state of antagonism exists between the sexes as a result of the curse this goes back to genesis chapter 3 you might want to turn with me since we have a little little time so let's just go back and i'll point this out because some of you may have uh never never been here when i when i taught this so look at look at genesis chapter 3 verse 12 so they've bo- both they've shared the they've shared the fruit. Then God came as He did every day, and they ran and hid because they were afraid of Him. They knew in their heart of hearts that they had done something really bad, and that they were in trouble. And so when they when God came, when they heard the sound of His voice in the garden, they ran and hid. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. So they knew that they had done wrong. And so God says to them. Says to the woman, What have you done? Now, God knows what she did, but God asks questions. This is important. Ask questions to get people to think through the answer in their own head. Don't just tell them what the answer is, help them come to it themselves. So the Lord said to the woman, What have you done? So, the, uh, well, let's start with the man. Then the man said, He asked him, What have you done? The woman, which you gave to me, you know, he's blaming God and the woman. Still happens. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. And verse 13, And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. Notice the more than. That the serpent, all, that means that all the cattle and all the beasts of the field are all under judgment. But the serpent has an additional, a more harsh judgment. Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. He's still talking to the serpent in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. But see, he's talking to Satan through the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, Satan's seed, it's interesting when John the Baptist and Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. If you look the Greek word up for brood, it means the seed. And what are vipers? They're serpents. That's what, they're, that's what Jesus and John the Baptist called the Pharisees. You're the seed of serpents. He shall bruise your head, referring to the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head, which is a fatal fatal wound, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, it doesn't matter where the viper bites you, you're going to die. So, but Jesus died, and then he rose again. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In other words, there was no pain associated, there would have been no pain associated with childbirth. Whatever is involved in the reproductive and the gestation period and the birth period that is negative, that we associate, that women associate with giving birth, wasn't going to be there initially. That was not, at all there it's all of that is the result of this curse in pain you shall bring forth children there would not have been any pain before And then it says, your desire shall be for your husband. And the word there for desire is not a word for sexual desire. It is a word for control. It's only used three times in Scripture, but the first two times it's used, it's used when Moses writes Genesis, and one time it's used in Genesis 3, and one time it's used in Genesis 4. And so let's look at Genesis 4. Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is born first. Abel comes along. Abel's a keeper of the sheep. Cain's a tiller of the ground. A lot of people will will say when they brought the offerings that, that the word for offering for, that Cain brought it's legitimate in the law. But there, there's we don't have any information on what's described. Hebrews indicates that Cain did it wrong and Abel did it right. Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. He had to produce that, so it's his works. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. And that just really ticked off Cain. He's very angry. His countenance fell. You could just look at the expression on his face. He's angry and he's depressed. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, in other words, if you do what I tell you to do, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you disobey me, sin lies at the door, and it's what? It's desire. That's the same word that's used in Genesis 3. It's desire is for you. It's desire is to control you. That's what that word means. It's a desire to control And so the war of the sexes starts and is made evident by God right there. Your desire will be to control your husband, and then he shall rule over you. That is a broad word for rule, and it probably has this in in the context and the contrast. It probably means he's going to strive to dominate you. You're going to resist him and resist his authority and he's going to want to push you back. So it's the war of the sexes. The only thing that overcomes that is Ephesians 5 and 6. When you understand, when you're born again as a believer and you understand God's role for marriage that the purpose of the marriage of man and woman according to Genesis chapter 2 is for the two to serve God together to glorify God. That's the purpose of marriage. It's not to be happy. Not to feel all warm and cuddly about the other person, now all that's nice, but the purpose is for these people to be a part partnership for the woman to assist the man so that together they can glorify god and sin is the problem, and so this is what what's happening here in when we look at judges chapter uh chapter nineteen is that that She's just ticked off at him, whether legitimate or not isn't the issue. The issue is she just ticked off, and she goes home to Daddy. And then finally he lets her settle down, and he goes uh, to get her. But it all goes back to just sin. And because they do, everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes and not what's right according to the Scripture. In pagan, here's another principle. In pagan culture, one sex or the other dominates in the wrong way, dominates. Either in a human viewpoint, patriarchy, in which case women become abused, which is what you have in, the, among the Canaanites. Patriarchy, the way God designed it, is good. It's not abusive. Both are respected and honored and recognize their their place in god 's plan, but in human viewpoint patriarchy it 's just a battle for who 's going to be boss and the result is women have historically become abused, and human viewpoint matriarchy just has never worked there's never been a, there have been examples of this in in different tribes and stone Age cultures in Africa and other places, but they don 't work. They fall apart because that violates God's God's standards. The only solution is a divine viewpoint recognition of the roles of male and female and their equality as image bearers. That they are both equal as image bearers. They are designed by God to complement each other, not to dominate each other and so what we see all through judges increasingly as the culture got more paganized the women became more abused and irrelevant that's where we are today who would have ever thought forty years ago in the midst of the battle to uh, get equality for women in co- collegiate athletics that forty years later uh, the powers that be would say, Oh, it's okay if men just say they're, they identify as a woman. It's okay. We'll let them in the women's uh, dressing room and we'll let them compete against the women because they think they're a woman. So we got to let them have their fantasy. Who would have ever thought we would do that? We have upended everything that was done to advance women's ability to find uh, equality in the human viewpoint patriarchy of our country. And it's just getting more and more destructive. And the only solution is the Word of God and for people to submit to the Word of God. And we see that that microcosm in this one family blows up into a major civil war that almost totally annihilates one of the 12 tribes. That's the consequences of sin. That's the consequences of moral relativism. So with that, we'll come back and look at the details next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to read a passage like this and to get a warning and to get an understanding of what is actually happening culturally in our nation and how it is just working itself out because uh, sin is, has the same consequences over and over again. We've, we've not only tried communism and it's failed every time, and socialism and it's failed every time, but we've tried these social experiments on, uh, on, on sexual roles, and they, they, it never works. The only thing that works is submission to your authority and then submission to one another, as Paul says, and with the proper leadership in the home from the father, the husband, and for the partnership of both husband and wife in and um, carrying out the responsibility to glorify you in their marriage and in their family. And Father, the only thing that's going to change people is your word and the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that could happen because apart from that, we're going to go down the same road that Israel went down. We pray that we might be strong, that we might be focused on the word and that whatever happens, our happiness, our joy, our stability will not be shaken because you are our rock and it doesn't affect you. And as we are in Christ, it should not affect us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.